day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Equal justice under law. Now, those are the words that are inscribed across the top of the U.S. Supreme Court building in Washington, and their placement is a nod to the cardinal importance given to the idea that in this country— those accused of crimes are entitled by our Constitution to a host of critical protections. The Constitution guarantees every American the right to due process at arrest, the right to a jury trial, and the right to effective assistance of counsel, among other protections. And overarching all of those is the idea that those safeguards must be preserved without regard to race or sex or religious belief. But over the life of our republic, those rights have been shaped and influenced by many factors, and they have changed in the way that they have been interpreted many times. There has been bias. There has been discrimination in the way that those protections have been applied to Americans in the balance of our nation's history. The story of our republic in many ways is defined by the refinement of these protections and the fight to extend them to more of the population and to do so more fairly. How far is our country right now from that ideal of equal justice under the law for everyone who faces criminal prosecution? For the full hour today, we want to continue our WDET book club discussions about the Constitution with a focus on that question. Criminal justice and the protections that Americans can and should expect, as well as the bias that has made those protections weaker and more elusive for so many. Our guests this hour are two of the co-hosts for a really exciting podcast called Sisters-in-Law, which brings together a group of female political and legal masterminds to discuss current issues in the law. Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan and the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and she is one of the co-hosts of the Sisters in Law podcast. Barbara, welcome back to Detroit Today. And Kimberly Atkins Store is senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe, a former trial and appellate litigation attorney, and another of the co-hosts of the Sisters in Law podcast. Kimberly, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah. So I want to start by talking just briefly, at least, about the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution that prescribe fairness in the criminal justice system. Of course, uh, there are several amendments that address it directly and some that uh, have an indirect effect on how those protections uh, are, are preserved. Uh, Barb, I'll start with you. Uh, this was something that in the early days of the Republic, once the Constitution uh, is proposed to the states, uh, that, that citizens kind of uh, rose up and said, you know, there aren't enough protections for us uh, with regard to uh, criminal prosecutions. And so we need these amendments uh, to make sure that the government doesn't abuse our freedom the way uh, the government that we just uh, fought a war to get away from uh, was doing. Talk about how those amendments uh, take shape uh, before the Constitution is ratified. 
There are a number of uh, rights that were not, as you say, Stephen, originally in the Constitution, but came in the Bill of Rights, which was enacted about 10 years later. And so some of those that were designed specifically to protect people from government abuse and overreach, we still see continuing relevance today. The Fourth Amendment, which guarantees our right against unreasonable searches and seizures, continues to be applied and interpreted, especially as technology evolves. Um, Our Fifth Amendment rights that we cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, later, after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment comes along and extends that same protection to uh, the, the, the states uh, from, from state government overreach. Um, the Sixth Amendment gave us a right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. It has a number of other provisions in it about the rights uh, of, of the accused, but also includes the right to assistance of counsel. Uh, and the Eighth Amendment which talks about no excessive bail or excessive fines and no cruel or unusual punishment. So those were all put in place then uh, to protect our rights. And we have seen, you know, sometimes we say the the founders were geniuses. Sometimes they had some very misguided ideas, uh, like uh, the idea that, uh, you know, black people would count as three-fifths of a person for purposes of the House of Representatives. But in some of these ways, uh, some of these... uh, rights that were ensconced in the Bill of Rights have really uh, breathed life into uh, what we consider in the criminal justice system today. Hmm. And uh, Kimberly, the, the, the struggle that I referenced in the open over time to perfect, I guess, these, these perfections is, is really, uh, I guess, uh, runs side by side with uh, other struggles uh, to make sure that the Constitution's protections um, protect everybody uh, equally. Talk about the ways in which uh, our notions of things like due process in the context of criminal justice have changed dramatically uh, over over more than 200 years. Yes. So, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, the Constitution is a great experiment, right? You have a lot of the foundational principles that Barb was talking about that was built into the, the Constitution itself and its Bill of Rights. But it's really in, in the um, performance of those rights and in, in the execution of those principles that you see the differences. And that's where the common law comes into play. Courts take up cases uh, one by one, and they make their way up to the appeals process. And through that process, you get uh, rulings from courts, uh, state, and and the Supreme Court uh, that set out what those what those rules really mean, what the rights really mean, and what the limitations are. So you have something like the right to counsel developed over time to include the right for indigent defendants to have a right to counsel counsel appointed to them if they can't afford that. That's something that most of your listeners know from TV Mm -hmm. crime shows. You have the right to an attorney. (laughs) Well, that came from a case that interpreted that Sixth Amendment right. So we've seen over time uh, when it came to issues of justice, that was for the courts really to step in and decide what really is the best way to bring about fairness to these principles that are ensconced in the Constitution. Mm. So I want to talk about several different uh, specific aspects of criminal justice uh, during the, the conversation today. And, and I want to start uh, with uh, the place that I think for most people these rights kind of kick in in their minds. And that, of course, is due process at the point of uh, contact 
with uh, criminal justice authorities. You're pulled over by the police. Uh, you are questioned, perhaps, by the police, approached and questioned by the police. Uh, you may be arrested uh, by, the police, by the police. There are several constitutional protections that guide the way that that has to happen. And I want to start there uh, talking about the controversies that, uh, that have existed over time and still exist today uh, about the way that happens. So, uh, Barb, let's start with this idea of due process at arrest at the point of contact uh, with authorities. What governs that and what are we still struggling with? So, so much of this Stephen, comes between the disconnect between these lofty principles and protections and the very human uh, component of enforcing them. You know, as, as Kim said, it's not just judges and justices, but it's police officers on the streets. And so one of the things uh, that we are entitled to as citizens is the ability to walk around, you know, free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And so if the police stops us, they can do that if they have probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. They can also do it if they have reasonable suspicion that crime is afoot. So they can't arrest us on this lower standard of reasonable suspicion, but they can stop us to ask us questions. They can even stop and frisk us under the law. But what we've seen there is some abuse of that power. You know, in New York, kind of famously, um, during the time when Mayor Bloomberg was in office, there was this very aggressive stop and frisk policy that was occurring in New York. And the idea was, I want to stop people who might be carrying a gun, who might be engaged in drug activity. But what happened, you know, this is where you hear on the crime shows, police say, I just have a sixth sense about these things. <laughs> well, oftentimes the sixth sense is, is actually racism or, or just implicit bias. You know, I see some black kids hanging out on the street corner and I assume they're up to no good. That, that's not, I, I think if the, the, the framers had been thinking about that, maybe not so much in terms of black people who were slaves and not subject to these rights and, you know, could have been rounded up by the police. I think if they'd been thinking about this, they would say, well, we don't want people to be hassled just because they're congregating in a group of their peers. And so that's where this disconnect comes in. So in New York, there was a, a case, a challenge was brought against the stop and frisk policy where they were being very aggressive with this uh, practice. And a, a district court struck it down. It was on appeal. And so we never got final resolution of the legality of it. Uh, but ultimately, a settlement was reached and they agreed to stop doing it. I know for a short time, Chief Craig in Detroit was considering um, a stop and frisk policy modeled after New York. And, and after that case, I think wisely um, stood down and did not uh, bring that kind of practice here. Uh, you know, I suppose uh, you might find drugs, you might find guns, and you might remove dangerous people from the street. But at what cost? You know, the cost of liberty. And in New York, we saw a really disparate uh, effect based on race. You know, far more young black men were being subject to this stop and frisk policy uh, than, than their white counterparts. And so, uh, you know, these laws are there, but, you know, we're constantly moving toward a more perfect union. And so it happens because of legal challenges that are brought when we see overreach. Mm. And uh, Kimberly, of course, there are also all kinds of due process questions that come up after the point of arrest. And once someone is actually formally accused of a crime, charged and goes to trial, that includes, of course, how juries are selected. That includes uh, how people are represented uh, at trial. Uh, talk about some of the things that have happened or are happening now to make sure that due process at that stage looks the way it should. 
Yes, yeah, so one of the most important aspects of that is the way that juries are selected and impaneled. And we, we all know from the Constitution that we have a right to trial by a jury of one's peers, but there's been a lot of litigation in court cases about what exactly that means and what happened frequently throughout the history of the United States, particularly when uh, black folks, people of color, were tried. They were often tried uh, before all-white juries, particularly in the South, and it made it all but impossible for impartial justice to be carried out in those cases. They were almost certain to be convicted. And so what has happened over time are some court cases which uh, make it uh, impermissible to, for example, strike jurors on the basis of their race. A, A prosecutor can't object to all the black people on a jury and have them taken off. That's impermissible. Well, something else can happen because otherwise there is a, a wide, um, a, a really a wide ability for uh, counsel to strike certain people for for no reason uh, at all. And so, what would happen is now there is a process set up in place that if, for example, all of the black jurors are struck uh, from that. That can be challenged. That can be the basis of a challenge. And if it's not addressed during the trial, it can lead to a new trial being granted ultimately on the basis of that unfairness to the defendant. So then you have another, that's another example of this Sixth Amendment right sort of being fleshed out by courts in order to ensure greater uh, fairness in these trials. Now, does that create fair trials for everyone? No. Uh, there are still cases that there are questionable decisions with respect to jurors being struck from a case to this day, and there are still uh, vast racial disparities when it comes to the conviction rates of black and brown folks compared to the conviction rates of white folks. So these um, these guardrails are far from perfect, uh, just the same way that we know that, you know, I've been pulled over for a DWB driving while black during my time living in, in Michigan and, and elsewhere in the country. Th- these guardrails are in place, but they are not they are not perfect, and we see that through the statistics that still bear out that whether it's at the point of arrest or at the point of conviction or throughout the criminal justice system, there are vast, vast racial discrepancies. Mm. Uh, Barb, I want to talk just a little about uh, the 1960s and uh, several court cases that really seemed to change the fundamental way in which the courts were beginning to see these rights, these protections uh, in in the context of of criminal justice and and the Constitution. And and part of the reason I want to do that is that uh, on Tuesday we had a conversation on the show about the effect that the justices of the Supreme Court uh, and the chief justices uh, have had over time and how that role has really been different depending on who the chief justice was and who the other justices were and what else was going on in the country. But in the 1960s, when Earl Warren is uh, the chief justice at the Supreme Court, sees the court delve into some of these questions in a way that they hadn't before. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about why that happened and what changed and and how today, I guess, there are some controversies that we're dealing with that spring directly out of the direction that the Warren Court uh, pushed us into. Yeah, and I think that goes back to this idea, Stephen, that although uh, 
the Constitution is a written document that's existed for more than 200 years. It continually evolves because of the human factor Mm -hmm. and human application and interpretation. So as you say, in the 1960s, we had Chief Justice Earl Warren, and I think this is a great example of how it really matters who is on the court. Uh, The the makeup of the court can influence, and you know, I, I like to think that they don't have a naked political agenda, but that they have a worldview that um, a president is aware of when he or she uh, appoints that person to the court. So, for example, with Earl Warren, we saw a great expansion of those first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, applying to the states. So originally they applied only to the federal government. Mm-hmm. But through something we refer to as the incorporation docu- doctrine, one by one, case by case, the court started looking at challenges that were brought by litigants uh, that said, um, not only can the federal government not deny me of this right, but the due process clause of the 14th Amendment extends that same right to the state, to me, and my, against my state government. And so we saw a, a whole bunch of these kinds of things, maybe most famously um, Gideon versus Wainwright, which said that the states also have this duty under the Sixth Amendment to provide counsel to indigent defendants, the right Kim talked about earlier, mm-hmm. the right to an attorney. Um, until that case, states were able to say, nope, uh, we're not paying for that. No, no lawyer for you. Uh, and so that was a big one. Another big one was um, the Miranda case that came out um, that said, uh, we want to make sure that people are knowingly waiving their right to remain silent. The Fifth Amendment includes the right against self-incrimination. And so they created what's known as a prophylactic rule. You will find nowhere in the Constitution the Miranda warnings that people get. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right, right to an attorney. Um if you do waive these rights, uh, you know, everything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. If you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you. That's the essence of the Miranda warning. Um, officers had to give that warning uh, before they could question someone who was in their custody. And the purpose of that was to prevent, it's really more of a policy choice, to prevent officers from coercing defendants in their custody from giving a confession. And so um, that was a very aggressive court in terms of uh, breathing life into these rights. Some would argue, uh, you know, I think the response to that court was uh, the originalist movement, the textualist movement, those who said that this was legislating from the bench or judicial activism. So there are a lot of different schools of thought on the proper role for the judiciary. But but that um, uh, breathing of life into those rights comes from the very active role of the Warren Court in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And, and Kimberly, when we think of some of the popular controversies about the relationship between criminal justice authorities and citizens, uh, for instance, uh, the struggle uh, over Black Lives Matter, um, uh, police killing of uh, African Americans often for unexplained or just non-existent reasons, when we think of the debate about uh, George Floyd uh, and and his murder uh, last year and all of the questions uh, that it raised, it, it seems to me that some of that is part and parcel of this change of expectation that comes out of the Warren Court decisions that, that really does expand the notion of equal protection and what it's supposed to mean to everybody. Yes, it absolutely does. It is grounded in those very uh, new breathing of life into parts of the Constitution that Barb talked about, and we certainly saw that uh, with the, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and certainly with the, with the uh, public lynching of, of George Floyd. But what that 
case also exemplifies is the way, uh, in a lot of ways, the court sort of pushes back against that notion on the other side, and that brings to mind the the concept of qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, qualified immunity is the fact that in most cases, um, public officials, including police officers, cannot be sued for constitutional violations that they commit during the course of their job. Now, if you're wondering where in the Constitution that is found, the answer is it's not. It is nowhere in the Constitution. This was an entirely judicially created rule, a rule that was made up by the courts in order to give protection against police officers from from a host of lawsuits. Now, you can make the case that in some ways why that's important, but what that has essentially done is made it very, very difficult for people to seek any sort of redress when their constitutional uh, rights were violated mm-hmm. by police due to excessive force. So now you've seen the other branch of government get involved, which is the legislature, and there have been efforts, uh, pushes, to include the removal of qualified immunity in federal uh, civil rights legi- legislation that came out uh, after George Floyd's murder. There have been efforts to do that on the state level to really mixed results. For the most part, there is a big pushback, particularly from police groups, against doing this besides the call for it from civil rights uh, organizations. So you see a real tension cont- continuing now uh, in terms of where the law stands um, on-, on this crucial issue. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the Constitution and criminal justice protections. We're also, of course, going to keep our two wonderful guests, the co-hosts of the Sisters-in-Law podcast, Barb McQuaid and Kimberly Atkins-Store, will stay with us for the rest of the conversation. We also want to incorporate you, the listeners, into this uh, conversation about the Constitution. Do you think our criminal justice system is fair? What have your own experiences been when dealing with the courts or police? Would you support some of the changes that are being proposed to make the system fairer? And should we end or reform things like qualified immunity for police officers or things like cash bail, which make it harder for some people to experience the justice that we are supposed to get from the U.S. Constitution. As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, I'm really glad you've joined us. This hour, we're talking about the Constitution and criminal justice. And our guests are two co-hosts of a really wonderful podcast called Sisters-in-Law. Barb McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan and a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Kimberly Atkins-Store is a senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe 
and a former trial and appellate litigation attorney. Uh, They are helping us frame out this conversation about the Constitution and criminal justice and the notion of equal justice under law. How far are we from the ideal that everyone enjoys the full protections that are laid out in the Constitution with regard, without regard to race or sex or religion? And what are some of the things we ought to be thinking about? What are some of the changes we ought to be contemplating to broaden the reach of those protections, to include more Americans? Uh, in those protections in more meaningful ways. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Call and tell us whether you think the criminal justice is fair. We especially want to hear from you if you've had uh, experiences uh, dealing with the courts or with police and We'd love to know what those experiences were like. Did you feel as though you were treated fairly uh, in the criminal justice system? Did you feel as though your race or your gender uh, or your religious belief had nothing to do uh, with the adjudication of whatever issue uh, you faced in our court system? Uh, And give us a sense of what you think needs to change in America to make things fairer when it comes to criminal justice. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can try to work you into the conversation that way. Let's start today with Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Um, as usual, uh, what I called in to tell you um, is that I think that the Supreme Court got it wrong when they decided not to bring the Guantanamo Bay detainees to the United States for trial. Hmm. I'd like to hear your guest opinion on that. But the other thing that this conversation has brought to mind is that I always get kicked out of jury selection. After they ask me the questions, <laughs> it seems to me they only want the ignorant people to serve on jury. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Oh, no, me. Bernadette. <laughs> Bernadette, I really love uh, that you called and asked both of those questions. Uh, I'm going to start with this uh, Supreme Court decision about Guantanamo. Uh, Barbara McQuaid, forever in the Republic, there has been a debate about how far these protections in the Constitution over criminal justice actually reach. And the question of detainees captured uh, as part of uh, a foreign conflict uh, is one of the frontiers of that that question. Uh, the, The court has struggled uh, many times over the question of what to do when it comes to those folks. Yeah, I think Bernadette focuses on a really interesting question, which is Guantanamo. Again, I think it's the kind of thing that our framers would have been horrified by, the idea that we're detaining people indefinitely offshore. And you know, the original intent there was to completely avoid judicial review. That That's kind of echoes or uh, presaging of what happened in Texas with this abortion statute, right? I'm going to create a law um, that can't be touched by the courts because Mm. we might lose if the courts look at it. So um, the the goal there was to avoid uh, habeas corpus review by having them in Guantanamo outside the jurisdiction of the United States. But actually the court has pushed back on some of this. Uh, There was a case called Boumediene versus Bush in 2008 that said the habeas corpus uh, uh, process was available to detainees at Guantanamo. 
and they also had already ruled in a case called Hamdan versus Rumsfeld in, mm-hmm. in 2006 that um, uh, only uh, Congress and not the executive branch could uh, set up military com- commissions to um, try captives in the, the, the war on terrorism. But Congress then quickly responded with the Military Commissions Act. So we still have that concept there. But I, I agree with Bernadette that um, Guantanamo is used as propaganda around the world to demonstrate that we do not stand up for our values. And so, you know, if people are uh, violating criminal laws, we should have a trial, uh, a public trial for them. Um, and if they are not, perhaps it is necessary we release them. You know, we can keep people as prisoners of war while there are uh, activities going on. But now that we're out of Afghanistan, I think the legal basis for Guantanamo may be in question. So look for some challenges to occur there. Mm. Uh, and, and Kimberly, Bernadette's second question about why she is always eliminated from jury selection, I think, is really is really interesting. Her, her supposition is that... Uh, Lawyers want people who are not particularly well informed uh, to be on a jury, and that uh, because uh, Bernadette answers the questions with lots of information, that uh, it eliminates her from uh, from from the possibility. Uh, Kimberly, you're an attorney. Uh, yeah. You were a trial attorney at some point. Tell us about uh, what what lawyers are looking for when uh, they're putting juries together. Well, I've been, yes, as an attorney, I've both been in the position of helping impanel a jury, questioning a jury, to impanel them. I've also been on a jury several times (laughs) as a juror. And as an attorney, what you are looking for uh, is within the limitations of the law that we talked about earlier. You're looking for somebody most likely to vote vote up for your side. I mean, that's sort of plain and simple. You want someone who is qualified. You want somebody who does not have a pre-existing bias. Um, in a case of whether they know, in a civil case, whether they know one of the participants, for example, or in a criminal case, whether they themselves have been a victim of a similar kind of crime as the one that has been uh, sought. You have all sorts of reasons why you're trying to do it. Certainly you can't strike somebody for an impermissible reason um, uh, like race. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you think it's somebody who won't be able to comprehend a case, if it's, if it's um, complicated, for example, I did a, a securities law case, which was really complicated, I won't say that I would want to strike someone for a lack of intelligence, but if you think they may not really be able to grasp it, um, that might be a cause for concern. Uh, but it also really depends on where you are. I, I've lived in places where I was rarely impaneled for a jury because the case is usually settled. And I lived in mo- other places where there are a lot of trials, and so I was impaneled a lot. So mm. there are a lot of factors that go into it. Mm. Can I add one thing on yeah. a prosecutor's perspective yeah, to absolutely. Bernadette's question? So this is my view of the world as a prosecutor, so take that for what it's worth. I may have my own implicit biases there. But my view was I wanted smart jurors because I had the burden of proof. And I needed them to follow along. And sometimes uh, prosecutions can be very complicated. Uh, you know, it may be a very complex wire fraud or money laundering scheme. So I want smart jurors. And I assess that based on education and the kind of job they have. You know, I want people with analytical jobs. So, um, but I think my, I, my perception was oftentimes in those same kinds of cases, the defense wanted to strike people they believed are smart jurors. Because if the juror is confused, then I lose. The, you know, the defense will prevail because I have the burden of proof. So I think Bernadette may very well have been struck from juries because the defense perceived her as too smart and they wanted to have jurors that they could lead astray. Hmm. That is my prosecutor's view of the world. Hmm. And Barb, you also, because you have such extensive experience here in Southeast Michigan, you have a lot of thoughts about the concept of 
being tried by a jury of your peers and how that plays out here in Detroit. That is something that we've really struggled with to get, given the overwhelming uh, African-American population in the city of Detroit, uh, it's been really hard to make sure that we get uh, enough African-Americans uh, to participate in the jury system uh, to be able to, to be those peers. Yeah, it's, it's been a, a, a chronic problem, at least in federal court where I practiced. Um, you would see, you know, Detroit is a city of, what is it, 80 to 90 percent African-American. Mm-hmm. And I think defendants come into trial, especially if you're a Detroiter. You know, the Eastern District of Michigan covers all of the eastern half of the state. So the juries get pulled from that whole community. But, you know, the trials are in Detroit. And I think a defendant from Detroit expects a jury uh, to look like his neighborhood, a jury of my peers. And instead, they walk in the room and of, of, uh, of a, a veneer, you know, the group from which they will draw those 12 of maybe, you know, 70 people, there, there's like two black people out there. And I can only imagine their reaction because it's not only important that we have a fair trial, but that there is a perception of a fair trial. And if you show up and you see this, and so as a result, by the time they randomly call out some names and get people in the box, you often have an all-white jury. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, you'll have one or two. And although prosecutors... Um, may not strike on the basis of race. One of the disadvantages, I think, to a prosecutor is if one or two of of those African-Americans get in the box, um, I I feel a a very strong need not to strike any of them, even if I have problems with their answers, Hmm. uh, because I don't want to create this perception that there's an all-white jury. In the trial of Kwame Kilpatrick, we worked very hard to have a diverse jury because we wanted there to be not only actual fairness, but the perception of fairness. There have been some efforts in the Eastern District of Michigan to improve this. One was a case um, uh, where the chief judge in the 90s said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to take all these questionnaires from jurors and we're going to strike, like, I don't remember the number, but like one out of every 10 or one out of every five white jurors. And that will just help improve the odds of, you know, calling in black jurors. Um, But what they didn't think about was a case brought by a defendant named Ovali. Ah, the Hispanic jurors. Nobody Mm -hmm. thought about that. So by Mm -hmm. striking some of these white jurors, they were also striking Hispanic jurors. So the problem with equal protection is this. It it, it assumes a race-blind system. But the reality of the world is that there are are continuing racial disparities. And so it's really difficult to try to address those racial disparities while at the same time uh, honoring the rules of the 14th Amendment. So it is a chronic problem. Uh, I know that the current chief judge, Denise Page Hood, has worked very hard to try to use other methods, uh, as has Judge Victoria Roberts, to improve the recruitment of African Americans, one of which is to um, send more questionnaires to black households in Detroit if they get a return to sender, to send it back to the same zip code uh, in hopes of just improving the likelihood that those citizens will show up uh, for the veneer from which those jurors may be selected. Mm. And and Kimberly, I want to talk just a little about uh, the, the Supreme Court's efforts to remove intentional bias from the jury selection process. The 1986 uh, case, uh, uh, Batson ruling, uh, said that you can't use race as a reason to strike a juror. And yet, uh, 30 years later, we we still struggle with the idea that uh, some of the jury selection process seems at least... uh, subtly uh, tinged with uh, with race and racism uh, and an intentional uh, exclusion of African Americans from that process. 
Uh, most certainly. I mean, first I want to just to say that I'm thinking a lot about the fact that I'm usually impaneled when I'm on a jury, so I'm wondering if <laughs> prosecutors or defense attor- uh, attorneys, uh, what that says about the perception of my intelligence. But that being said, um, <laughs> yes, you have this him, very all. important Batson case um, that found that discriminatory intent uh, to strike black jurors is, is impermissible, that is, unconstitutional, um, and doing so will result in a clear error, which could end up with a new trial. But the problem is, one of the hardest things to prove uh, in the law when you're an attorney, either on the criminal or, or uh, civil side, is intent. You have to prove the reason why someone did something. Mm-hmm. And particularly when attorneys have the ability to use peremptory strikes, which means you can strike a juror for any reason or no reason whatsoever, you have a certain number of those um, on each side, it's, it can be very difficult to make the case to prove that race was a reason why a juror struck. And so that's why it is incredibly rare to have a case that is overturned or, or a new trial given on the basis of uh, race. And, and people know that if they want to use that uh, to strike jurors for racial reasons, knowing that it's impermissible, they also know that it's really hard for that to be proven mm. and, and that that is built into a system. So that is why we still see these uh, inequities in practice. And and to, to be fair, uh, I, I think it's also, I think we also need to point out that, that the Supreme Court itself has made the bar of proof for that particular issue quite high uh, and in some cases has seen rather explicit attempts to to imbalance juries uh, racially uh, and and look the other way and then there again this question of who's on the court then plays a big role in how uh, a decision from 30 years ago looks today Kimberly yeah, I think that that is uh, absolutely that is absolutely true. I mean, by setting the the bar of the proof, you have to show that um, that there is a difference, a reason why um, the, the prosecutor would have to prove that there was a reason why this particular jury was struck and not the same as a white juror that, uh, by and large, had the same qualifications or, or situated. Similarly, uh, but the burden is on the defendant to show this, and it's as I said, it is very difficult. Um, and you know, I think that speaks to a lot of things. We're talking about Supreme Court. Um, there, I think it's part of the discussion of how where Supreme Court justices come from. Do they have uh, experience in in criminal law or as a prosecutor? Right now, uh, only um, Sonia Sotomayor is the only uh, jurist on the court that has uh, any sort of uh, background. Um, in that realm, you have justices that are usually from, you know, elite schools and, and come from the, the appellate uh, judiciary, um, and they may not have that same sort of, sort of on-the-ground experience, really understanding how difficult it can be to make these cases, difficult it can be to make these challenges and do so, ex- uh, and do so successfully, or understanding what it's like to have uh, to be on uh, working for the defense mm-hmm. in, in those challenges. So I think that's that real-life experience, that broadened legal experience that you have on the part of not just the Supreme Court but other federal judges, too, 
can come into play here. And, of course, diversity on the courts. Uh, the, the courts tend not to reflect the communities where they are found. Uh, and certainly the Supreme Court, even though it has made some advances in diversity, is not uh, anywhere near reflective of the general population. So I think all of those factors come into play, the lived experiences of the justice as they're uh, ruling on these cases and making these and setting these precedents. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about the Constitution and criminal justice. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number here. Call and tell us whether you think criminal justice is fair in America, and if not, what do we need to change to make it fairer? Also, love to hear from folks about their experiences in the criminal justice system and whether they felt they were treated fairly. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are co-hosts of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. Barb McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and Kimberly Atkins-Store is a senior opinion writer at the Boston Globe and a former trial and appellate litigation attorney. We're talking about the Constitution and criminal justice, the protections that are laid out in the Bill of Rights uh, to make sure that there isn't government overreach or abuse uh, when we are uh, accused of criminal wrongdoing in our country. We're talking about how that has changed over time in terms of the way it's been interpreted and enforced, and how wide the reach is now for those protections. Uh, also, whether those protections are infected by the bias and discrimination uh, that has shaped so much of uh, the constitutional interpretation in our past. Uh, as always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about fairness in uh, the criminal justice system and whether uh, whether we are close to the ideal of equal justice under law. If not, give us a sense of what you think we need to do. We also would love to hear from you about your personal experiences uh, in the criminal justice system and uh, whether you felt as though that was handled fairly. Uh, you can also go to Facebook or to Twitter, and we'll try to work you into conversation that way. Uh, Kimberly and, and Barb, I, I, I want to go come back to the question of qualified immunity, mostly because we've gotten a number of social media comments about it. I'm going to start uh, with those. Ed says, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Big Neo says, equal protection under law will never be the case as long as you have street judges in the form of police officers killing folks like Tamir Rice, who was gunned down for having a toy gun in an open carry state. Those mindsets need to change first. Uh, Ed says the qualified immunity ends when the law enforcement knowingly breaks your constitutional rights. Record everything and stream live because the police department will delete your uh, video. And the campaign to end qualified immunity says, unfortunately, because of the clearly established law requirement, 
qualified immunity can still be granted to government officials like police, even if they violated your rights. And they have attached uh, a collection of cases uh, to that uh, that they say prove why we have to end uh, qualified uh, immunity. I, I, I want to come back to the idea of how qualified immunity, I guess, fits into the question of uh, our, our, our constitutional protections. I mean, it is not, of course, mentioned in uh, the Constitution itself. Uh, but where does this idea come from and how do we approach these questions that uh, people like Ed and uh, Big Neo and the campaign to end qualified immunity are talking about? Kimberly, I'll start with you this time. Yeah, like I said, it was created by the courts. I think one way to really get to the heart of it, which is based right in the Constitution, it's in the Due Process Clause, where uh, the state may not deprive a person of life, liberty, or process without due process of law. I think certainly uh, police uh, violence that ends up in death, certainly the disproportionate uh, killing by police of black Americans, um, is certainly a depri- deprivation of life without due process of law. And I think one place that the law uh, and procedures need to change to get at this is that the standard that police officers have in the use of force is that, is generally speaking, it varies from jurisdiction, but generally speaking is the police can use a, 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 poli- a use of force that is commensurate to the threat that they perceive. The fact that it's their perceived threat makes the call subjective. And we know through studies that people perceive black persons inherently in a number of situations, including interactions with police, to be more threatening than non-black people. Mm -hmm. So what could change based on that constitutional principle is putting rules in place that really delineate clear objective standards for police officers that govern the amount of force that they can use in a, cir- in a circumstance, so that their inherent biases against black and brown people do not become a necessary part of the equation that automatically puts black and brown folks in more danger in a police interaction. Mm. Uh, Barb, uh, how do we convince uh, more of uh, the, the criminal justice establishment to, to reconsider qualified immunity, given the things that we keep seeing happen uh, in the streets? Well, I think there is already uh, an appetite in law enforcement for reform. I, I think, you know, sometimes we hear the, the loud voices uh, in politics uh, about law and order and the like. But, you know, for example, right now I'm working with the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan and the Hudson Weber Foundation on a grant program that a lot of par- police departments are clamoring to get to. We've had something like 70 applications for grants from police departments who want to do better. They want better training. They want better policies. But I think I agree with Kim that qualified immunity just is not working. Um, it creates an obstacle. You know, not only is it not in the Constitution, as, as Kim correctly points out, but it is actually a defense to the assertion of constitutional rights mm. that was created by judges. And one of the ways that it has become difficult is not only must the, the plaintiff assert that their constitutional rights were violated, they also have to show that that right is clearly established. And so unless the plaintiff can point to an existing judicial decision with almost identical facts, then they're going to lose. And the courts have decided they're going to look at that second question first. 
is this clearly established before they even decide whether it's a violation of the Constitution? So as a result, we're no longer creating any clearly established rights or, or you know, recognizing any clearly established rights. So I think the way it has developed has made it almost impossible, very, very difficult for even legitimate claims to go forward. You know, the, the goals there are to protect police officers from um, the chilling effect that they might have, second-guessing themselves when they really do need to take action uh, to protect themselves or the public and to protect them from frivolous litigation. But I think it's gone too far. And so I think the only way to change it is through an act of Congress. Mm. Um, and there have been legislation put forward by Cory Booker in the Senate and also Justin Amash, uh, our former representative from Michigan. So, um, and there is support for this not only from uh, liberals, but also conservatives who think this is judicial overreach. Mm. Again, uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's quickly go to Pat in Oakland County. Pat, we've only got a few minutes left, but I wanted to get your question in here. Uh, yes, Stephen. Um, I've worked in state parole and probation in Washtenaw County and in Oakland County. And in Washtenaw County, they have a state or they have a county-funded public defender's office mm -hmm. with attorneys that have criminal justice, criminal law experience versus when I worked in Oakland County, they had no public defender's oh. office. The attorneys are farmed out by the judges to represent defendants. And it just seemed that uh, it was sort of inequitable and in that the uh, You didn't feel like that was a particularly efficient way of doing it or effective way of doing it. Uh, Pat, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, but I do want to get uh, a response from uh, our guests and we're running out of time. Uh, Barb McQuaid, uh, you're, you're uh, someone who's practiced here in Southeast Michigan. Is this, uh, is this something we should be concerned about? Yes, Pat identifies a huge problem, and that is disparities in the way we give that Sixth Amendment right to counsel. You know, people who are well-funded can pay $1,000 an hour for a great lawyer, and then others... Um, have indigent defense. Now, public defender's offices, as Pat points out, like in Washtenaw County and now in Detroit, have these standardized practices and training and uh, standards, and they're doing a good job. But in some communities, we're relying on the county to fund it. There is a Michigan Indigent Defense Commission that is working on these things, but it's really important that we have professional standards so that people aren't falling through the cracks and having shoddy representation Lawyers paid by the hour who are incentivized to plead their client out so that, uh, I'm sorry, paid by the case instead of by the hour, who have a, a financial incentive to plead the case out as quickly as possible and not take the case to trial. So really important issue by Pat. I think we're working on it in Michigan, but we, we have some ways to go. Okay. Uh, Barb McQuaid and Kimberly Atkins store, co-hosts of the Sisters in Law podcast. It was really wonderful to have you both here today. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. And you can find the Sisters in Law podcast wherever you download podcasts, and I absolutely recommend taking a listen. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow, and we're going to talk with Congressman Dan Kildee. And to celebrate Constitution and Citizenship Day, we're going to talk with two brand-new Americans about why they decided to come to our country. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station.